The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome a favorite guest back, Ms. Ann Ross. She is an attorney at Charleston Pro Bono Legal Services based in Charleston, South Carolina. Her practice is dedicated to helping survivors of human trafficking and on victims' rights with a particular interest in forced labor in agriculture. Anne has an LLM in Agricultural and Food Law from the University of Arkansas, where her thesis addressed U.S. and European laws governing the use and regulation of endocrine-disrupting pesticides. Anne has also worked as the Director of International Policy for the Cornucopia Institute, which is a national consumer education and watchdog organization that works to uphold the integrity of organic food supply chains. She has frequently lectured and led trainings on fraud detection in complex supply chains, and her work has been recognized in the Washington Post, Mother Jones, and other regional, national, and international outlets. Anne, welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you again. It is. And I want to just thank you for reaching out to me about a topic that wasn't exactly on my radar and it really needed to be, especially since we've conversed back and forth and I've learned so much more about human trafficking now and forced labor in agriculture. How did you become interested in human trafficking, specifically in agriculture? Yes, well, that's a great question. I think a lot of us now are really interested in where our food comes from and a lot of things about food and agriculture generally and the effect on public health or pesticides. There are a number of issues in this area. I'm particularly interested in the people who are working in our food system, the farmers, the farm workers, And oftentimes, these folks are not recognized for all the hard work they do. And unfortunately, and tragically, we see that human trafficking does occur uh, in agriculture and right here in the United States and in every state of the nation. Mm. You know, I meant to ask you, what is LLM? You have an LLM in Agricultural and Food Law. What does that stand for? Basically what that is, it's like a master's degree. It's a degree that one year of study, at least this particular program, is beyond a JD or a law degree. So it's a way to focus attention on one area of the law, and that's what I did with agriculture and food. Well, I think this is a perfect marriage of just what we need to clean up the food system, certainly make it more transparent and more humane and just. I wanted to ask you to define human trafficking exactly because I have to express my own ignorance in that when I think of human trafficking, I mostly think about it in terms of sex workers. But because of you and thanks to you, I've realized just how integral it is in our food and agriculture system. 
Yes, well, you're exactly right. It does involve commercial sex trafficking. In the U.S., there's a federal law, and there are two primary forms of human trafficking under that law. and One is commercial sex trafficking, and the other is labor trafficking. And when it comes to labor trafficking, we're talking something that's more egregious than labor exploitation. We're talking about the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel that labor. And the force, fraud, and coercion can take its form in many different ways, from a trafficker withholding pay and earnings, requiring excessive working hours, verbal and physical abuse, threatening to withhold immigration documents. It comes in a variety of forms, and some are particularly uh, abusive. How does this illegal workforce make its way? Of course, this is a global problem, but how does this illegal workforce get into the United States? How is it that they are able to be exploited in this way? Right, and you are absolutely correct that it is a worldwide problem. 25 million people are estimated to be victims of forced labor at any given time in the world. As far as being lured into the U.S., oftentimes traffickers will promise a better life, better wages. If you come here, life will be so much better. They will often charge recruitment fees, which are illegal. There was a case several years ago that where some Thai workers were forced to work on pineapple farms in Maui and paid over $17,000 apiece, hoping to get a better life in the U.S. and, and found the conditions dramatically different. So there are a variety of techniques that traffickers will unfortunately use to convince people that life will be better here and to come to the U.S. I believe it's estimated that around 15 to 20,000 people are trafficked across the U.S. border every year. But I think it's also important to remember that American-born people and others are also trafficked right here. A common misconception is that there has to be some sort of movement across borders to constitute human trafficking, and that's just not the case. A person can actually be trafficked right where they are. Mm. So maybe my choice of words wasn't the best when I said illegal workers. I was thinking of the cross-border transit of individuals who were brought through, say, with a coyote. That's the name of the people that bring them over illegally. And then how does that work exactly? How are these people brought over to work here when they have to go through legal immigration in order to come here? I'm confused. Yes, well, there have been cases where, okay, so if you are passing over a border without legitimate work authorization or documents, that's technically smuggling. And what often happens in those cases is a coyote or someone for whom the coyote is working will charge the person that's being brought across the border for what they consider safe passage or they will create a debt that that person is supposed to work off once they get to the U.S. And that is one method of control that we see is that once that debt, real or imagined, is created, then a trafficker, once the victim is in the U.S., will continue saying, your debt is not paid, your debt is not paid, 
and the victim is essentially trapped. Oftentimes, immigration documents, if they exist, will be withheld, even passports in certain cases where the victim has a passport. And in that case, they can't even get back into their home country. Oh, my. Well, you had sent me a few links, both to print stories as well as some frontline investigations. And one example I thought I would bring forth had to do with a family, and this was pretty typical, where a family is poor, really hungry, and there is a child of working age, a young, strong male, say, for example, who is promised the ability to go over to the United States to find employment, and everything looks rosy, like they're going to get a job and they're going to help the family. But the family has to give up the deed to their home in order for part of that payment to bring the the child over the border to work. And then once the child gets over, they are paid, but then they have to pay for rent to live in squalid conditions. And I wondered how the money that they earned, that they were left, actually did go back to the family to repay that debt. Right. Well, oftentimes, no money will go back to repay the debt. And it's such a horrible form of psychological control when a trafficker tells, for example, the child in this case, you haven't paid the debt and your family will lose title to their property. Your family will no longer have their farm. Your family will no longer have their property. They will be homeless. There are also instances where threats to the lives of family members have been used by traffickers to really gain control and keep keep victims working. Mm. Um, so this debt bondage, as they call it, is one method of trafficking and also threats to the lives of family members have occurred as well. If you don't stay, if you report this, your family is in danger. Right. What a tragic situation. This particular family, I wanted to go back to them because this poor young man was brought to the United States and he worked on a farm in Ohio. And of course, he's going from a warm tropical environment to a frigid one. He's living in a trailer with many other individuals, also assumed to be trafficked, and they don't have running water, they don't have heat, they don't have air conditioning, and they are working in a horrific poultry plant. And I'm thinking about being at the receiving end of this food system, right? I go into the grocery store, I look at the chicken in the packages, I look at the eggs in the crates. How am I to be able to say, I don't want those eggs, I don't want that poultry, that's disgusting and illegal? Right, and it's very hard to tell, and that is one of the challenges in our food system. So when I'm asked this question, I encourage people as much as I can to support their local and regional food systems to the extent you can know your farmer. It can be very difficult. There are labels out there for some products, such as Fair Trade. There's also food justice certification. I always say, though, that labels won't solve a human trafficking problem. So we have to be especially diligent, and one way consumers can get involved is by pushing their legislators to enact legislation that is protective. For example, California has legislation that requires companies with a certain amount of gross receipts to actually post on their websites 
what they're doing to make sure that there's no human trafficking or forced labor in their supply chain. So there is information like that available, and that information is listed or published in California. The Department of Labor also maintains a list of products and countries that the Department of Labor has reason to believe were produced by child labor or forced labor, and that's available on the Department of Labor website. So that's one place to start, even though that's not going to tell you specifically about a product in your store. If if it's suspected, if you look at that list and you see, well, coffee from this particular country, there's strong suspicion the Department of Labor thinks could have been produced by child labor or forced labor, elect to buy another product. Right. Um, so these are some of the things that we can do. Is it necessarily a cheaper product that is more likely to be sourced from trafficked labor? I don't know the answer to that. I would say I doubt it that that's always the case because many of those companies or entities, if they are intent on a profit motive at all costs, then they may be charging high prices and also exploiting their workers. So I think that that's a difficult conclusion to make as an absolute certainty, but great question. Yeah. We will get back to that in just a moment, but because we're halfway through, I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Ann Ross. She is an attorney at the Charleston Pro Bono Legal Services in Charleston, South Carolina, and her practice is dedicated to helping survivors of human trafficking and on victims' rights with a particular interest in forced labor in agriculture. And I wanted to mention something about price because in one of the references that you sent me, there was mention of Taylor Farms in California, and they do leafy greens. They even have organic greens. So being organic versus non-organic product is not necessarily going to tell us that there's more or less trafficking involved in the production of that product. But Taylor Farms sells products to both Walmart and Whole Foods. So I sort of getting to my question about is it necessarily the cheaper priced product that is going to necessarily be more or less likely to be produced with human trafficking? Here's a great example of the Walmart versus Whole Foods. We really can't depend on the grocer per se as being a good source of non-trafficked products. Well, that's exactly right. And that's a challenge that we definitely have in determining where where a food product came from. As you mentioned, you know, something that's sold in Walmart could come from the same farm as something sold at Whole Foods. So it's very, very difficult to tell. And again, to the extent it's available, I really encourage people to buy locally if they can. Right. You know, in thinking through the question, I was feeling like we should be or there should be some pressure on grocers to sign documents saying that none of their products are going to come through the hands of trafficked labor. And I wonder if there's been any legal pressure put on, say, the the Kroger's of the world or the Walmarts and the Whole Foods to have a more responsible sourcing policy. 
Right. Well, what initially comes to mind when you ask that question would be the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And that's a fascinating story if your listeners aren't familiar with it. But essentially, in the early 90s, a group of workers in tomato fields in Florida came together and demanded fair wages and also really made strong efforts and progress in combating human trafficking that was happening in the fields there. What was born out of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers was the Fair Food Program. And the way that program works is there's an agreement between farm workers, growers, and retailers. And the retailers pay a small premium to make sure that the workers are are fairly compensated. And so if you look at the Fair Food Program, and your listeners can Google that, you can see which retailers have signed up and are part of that program. So that is definitely a way that one can tell at least something about if the workers are being treated fairly. Right. Yeah, there's so much smoke and mirrors involved in understanding really where our food does come from. And the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, I agree, and it's a great example of what can happen when workers come together. And so any kind of labor organizing is really in the best interest of all of us. I wanted to bring up two pieces of information that I thought were important with regard to this topic. One is unaccompanied minors coming across the border seem to be vulnerable targets. Right. They are. And the last statistic I saw was that just this year, approximately 90,000 children attempted to cross the border unaccompanied. And that is a very sad statistic. What happens is that when a child comes across the border or is met at the border by agents, then they are placed essentially in foster care for a short period of time. There have been instances where sponsors or people who will take that child on who are not family members but are located in the U.S. have turned out to be traffickers. And these traffickers have taken the children as sponsors HHS, the government agency, has turned these children over to the care of the traffickers. And, of course, they were not cared for. They were actually forced into labor. This has occurred in agriculture. And and hopefully this is something that has been stopped or certainly going to stop because it has been a problem and it's well documented and been covered and by major news outlets. The other issue I wanted to bring up has to do with COVID and how COVID has amplified the problem. So not only are these quote-unquote essential workers being placed at risk for COVID, but it also has made it easier for people to be trafficked. What is the connection there? Yes, well, it has made it easier for people to be trafficked because trafficking victims are isolated generally. Well, COVID increased that isolation. So it was, they were isolated not only by their own movement being limited, but the detection was less likely to happen because 
most people, at least to some extent, were not getting out as much as they were. So this was and is still a big problem. Also, as we know, they were deemed essential workers and forced to work, not in a trafficking sense necessarily, but they had to remain on the jobs in in high-risk environments. So I think it's really important that we remember, okay, these are essential workers, not just during a pandemic. Do you want to say anything about the Blooming Onion case, Operation Blooming Onion? There was an indictment in November of 2021. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Right. Just recently, there was an indictment, and this occurred in in Georgia, actually. That's where the indictment was handed down against 24 alleged traffickers. And in that case, it's alleged that they submitted over 71,000 false H-2A temporary non-immigrant worker applications to immigration. They brought workers into the U.S., and these workers faced absolutely horrific conditions. They were fenced in. They were held at gunpoint. There are allegations of rape. Two individuals lost their lives during this terrible, terrible ordeal. And it began, according to the indictment, around 2015. The workers were brought from Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras, and the traffickers profited over $200 million from this illegal scheme. Wow. So it really is horrific, and they were also bought and sold amongst traffickers. Hmm. So it's hard to believe that these things occur, but they do. And fortunately, there there should be some justice in this case. How did these cases come to light? So there has to be some sort of oversight, you know, some sort of whistleblowing activity that makes the case come into focus to the attorney general's office, for example, or legislators. How do we see this largely invisible problem to make corrections. Right. It is very, very difficult to detect. And as I mentioned before, workers are certainly not incentivized to report. And often the traffickers will do anything to keep them from reporting. But there have been cases where workers have come forward. There are also cases where people notice something that's just not quite right and contact law enforcement. These are a couple ways. And then there are some seemingly even random ways that trafficking has been identified. And I'll give you one example, not from labor trafficking, but sex trafficking, where a, a young woman was sex trafficked and the revelation came out when she was taken to the hospital for an appendicitis and was put under anesthesia. She told the healthcare workers. So it is also worth mentioning that healthcare workers can often identify trafficking if they make it to actually receive medical care. Right, because so many of these operations have their own medical staff. In fact, there was one case that was identified with Frontline having to do with COVID where people would say, yes, I'm not feeling well, and the person in the front supposedly, you know, looking over the health of the employees would say, oh, go ahead, you can go ahead and work. So it is very difficult to get this information out. And I wondered, it almost seemed as if law enforcement in some cases turned a blind eye. 
Yes, there have been cases where law enforcement has turned a blind eye. There are also cases where there have not been enough law enforcement personnel dedicated to this issue, and that's one thing that many states have struggled with is getting the resources they are necessary to train law enforcement on this issue because a lot of times it's not so clear exactly what's happening in these cases. So yes, there need to be more resources dedicated to identifying trafficking and providing resources for victims. I did see that there's a human trafficking hotline, and it's 888-373-7888. And I will provide that link in the show notes. Again, that's 888-373-7888. Eight, eight. Do you want to say anything about the hotline? Yes. If you are suspicious that someone you know may be a trafficking victim or anything that you think uh, law enforcement could use in terms of identifying victims, even if you're not sure, call this hotline. It, it has been very, very effective in helping identify victims and Just this past year, over 22,000 victims and survivors were identified through this hotline. Since 2007, over 60,000 victims have been identified through this hotline. So please use it if you have information. And is that run by the Department of Labor? Who oversees that hotline? There is a national nonprofit called Polaris, and they have a partnership with the federal government and they run this hotline. And there are a lot of statistics out there about this hotline, the types of cases that are reported. And Polaris has a lot of educational materials on their website. And I think if anyone wants to learn more about human trafficking, that's a good place to start. Okay. I will make sure that we provide a link for our listeners there. Does public shaming do any good? You know, I'm looking at some of the agricultural operations that were targeted. Central Valley Meat Company in California, for example, I thought it was interesting that their website espouses family values, and yet there have been all of these offenses. There's the Trillium Farms in Ohio. There's, of course, Jack DeCoster, who was famous for his horrific poultry plants in Iowa, but he's also got plants in Maine and Ohio. Does bringing this information to the public raise awareness enough so that those farms change their practices? Well, consumer voices and consumer dollars definitely are power. I think that the information has to be so widespread and disseminated so well to change market forces. But we have to keep pushing on that front. We do. And I'm demanding more about learning where our food came from and requiring companies to disclose, for example, country of origin and things like that. So absolutely, I think it's important that we name names in this effort because otherwise the folks out there who aren't doing the right thing, the companies, they will continue this practice because after all, their motive is profit. Right. Oh, and our time is up, unfortunately. I want to thank you so much for your work in this area. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 
But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Ann Ross, attorney at Charleston Pro Bono Legal Services based in Charleston, South Carolina. And again, her practice is dedicated to helping survivors of human trafficking and on victims' rights with a particular interest in forced labor and agriculture. And thank you so much for your time and for focusing on this. And we will provide many links for our listeners to learn more. Thank you so much. Enjoy being with you.